So if you open your Bible this morning to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, I want to continue in the same vein that we've been in the last several weeks, and that is following this thought that what we lost in Adam, we found in Christ again. What we found in Christ thereby necessitates, since we've been raised with him, that we are to seek the things above where he is. We looked at that out of Colossians 3. And then we are also, as we saw last week, not to lose sight of the time of the harvest, even while we're surrounded in the world and in the church by tares, the existence of both the wheat and the tares. This morning, I want us to look a little further into what it means to have been raised with Christ, where our love is to be directed, and what, is to be, what it is to be directed away from. And so to that end, I want you to read with me verse 15, 16, and 17 of 1 John chapter 2. There John simply writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing upon this time. We ask, Lord, that you would open your word to us, that we would understand it rightly, that we would divide it accurately, that you would make application of it to us. We want our love to be directed towards you, our Father, and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and away from this world, its system, and the things that it offers. So we ask your help in these things, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we can get into verse 15, and I'm going to do this quickly. Lord willing, it's going to be quick. I want to go back to chapter 1, verse 1. And I want to walk through a few things. Because what we get to in verse 15 is a contrast or a negative aspect of a command. And so I want to show you what that command is and the positive aspect of it before we get to the negative. Now... In our walk as Christians, we need to understand both of them. What we're to direct ourselves to and what we're to direct ourselves away from. And so go back with me to verse 1 of chapter 1. Where John says, that which was from the beginning. Which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes. Which we have looked upon and which our hands have handled concerning the word of life. 
the life that was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. John is declaring a life, and that life was the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, we've seen him with our eyes, we've touched him with our hands, we are making him known now unto you, and the reason is so that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. That's the purpose of John's writing. Even though there's another purpose given later, towards the end, this is the initial purpose, that our joy might be full. Now let me ask you, just by way of applying this first part of this epistle, how many of you are living in abundant joy? And how much of that joy is derived from the person of Jesus? Because when we get down to the negative aspect of this command, what not to love, any joy that you may be having in the things of the world, what they offer, the scripture tells us they are passing away. It's not lasting. And it's not abiding. So this is the life being declared. And in the fifth verse, the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Here's the great contrast between the holiness of God and the world system. That's why we are told in verse 15 not to love it. Because it contrasts greatly with who God is and what he's made known about himself. I'm going to skip down to, or we're in the sixth verse of chapter 1, and I want to point out several verses where John says, if we say, that's found in verse 6, it's found in verse 8, it's found in verse 3 of the second chapter, it's found again as you scroll down through that second chapter in the ninth verse, and there is all this profession all of this profession being made. Let's look at them individually. He says, first of all, in the sixth verse of chapter 1, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So it's not what is said out of the mouth, but what is reflected in the life that matters. One thing you can't miss as you read the epistle of 1 John is the ease of profession and then the difficulty of a life that matches it. The second time he uses it in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Again, he says, in essence, we're lying to ourselves and the truth is not in us. You skip down to verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. No longer are we lying to ourselves, but this time we have made God himself a liar and his word is not in us. Down in the third verse of the second chapter. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says that I know him and does not keep his commandments again is a liar. 
and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. The word perfected there means to have come to a maturity, to be complete. By this we know that we are in him, and he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So, so far, what we've had John tell us is that there was a life manifest in perfection, perfect light, no darkness. And it doesn't really matter what we say so much as how we live. What you'll find in this epistle and all of the New Testament really is this marriage of profession and practice. They go together. You can't just have the one without the other. And you can't have the practice without the profession. If you have the practice and no profession, you're a legalist. But if you're trusting in Christ and the love of God is perfected in you, it's perfected to the form of bearing fruit in your life, then you are no longer lying to yourself and you're no longer lying to those around you and you're no longer making God out to be a liar, but there is a truth in your profession and in your walk. You might have heard it said this way, we're not called just to profess Christ, but to possess him. To actually have a hold of him by faith. Not just empty profession. That's where when we come to the Lord's table later, we're called to examine. Examine yourself. Be honest with yourself. Does your life match any degree of the things that you say? There should be fruit produced not in order to earn salvation, not to keep salvation, not to earn favor with God, not to keep favor with God, but as a result of God having been gracious to you and bringing you to faith in Christ, there should be fruit that is produced in that. And this gets us down to the command, the positive aspect of it and the negative. Here's, here's the command in general. The command is to love. That is John's expectation. That is an expectation that we're going to see that Christ also placed upon his followers, his disciples. The positive side of this command is to love your brother, to love the brethren. Necessarily having loved God first. We're going to see that as well. The negative side of it is to not love, your, is to not love the world. And we're going to try to define clearly and accurately what the world is in that verse. But first, let's see the positive. In verse 7, John says, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning Again, a new commandment I write to you. So it sounds as if John is speaking out of both sides of his mouth, doesn't he? But really, in essence, what he's saying is you've heard this before, and I'm reminding you of it now. And what you've heard is old. And some refer this all the way back to the first mentioning of the gospel. Some refer this back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth. Now being reiterated by John, it doesn't matter really where you place the oldness of this command. 
nor does it matter how new we see it. And I like this, this illustration that helped, helped me, and I think it will help you understand the old nature and the new nature of this command to love. It's as old as the sun, but as new as the dawn every morning. That's the abiding nature of this command. It always has been, but yet it's new every day. It's renewed. The sun's always been there, but it always comes up every morning, showing itself to be strong, like a strong man running its race, Psalm 19 tells us. So this is the commandment. To love God and to love your brother. Isn't that the way Jesus summarized the moral law? He was asked in Matthew 22, what is the greatest commandment? And then we know that he gave two, which summarized the ten. The two that he gave to love God, your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these hang the law and the prophets. Those two commandments perfectly fulfill the moral law of God. We're still under that moral law, obviously, but Jesus gave us a greater expression of them when he told us and he boiled those down to two. This is the commandment which John is speaking of. No new commandment I give you, but an old one. You've heard it from the beginning. The commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already Shining. And we come to this again in verse 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. And we can read that this way. He who says he is in the light of Christ in whom there is no darkness at all and yet hates his brother, is in darkness until now. There are two things that are greatly, two groups of things that are greatly contrasted in the ninth verse. Light and darkness. And love and hate runs throughout this paragraph. Verse 10 says, he who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So to summarize, the positive aspect of this command is to love first God, we go back to the Father in the sixth verse of the second chapter. He who says that he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Jesus did everything out of love for God, his Father, and in obedience to him. And then there's an interjection of sorts. Verses 12, 13, and 14, where John addresses the little children, the fathers, the young men. I view the little children here as being all believers because he calls them little children also in the beginning of chapter 2. And then immediately in verse 18, little children, it is the last hour. So I believe this is John's way of speaking to all Christians. And then he delineates two different groups, the aged, the mature, 
and the novice or the beginner. I don't want to spend much time with those three verses because I really want to get to the negative aspect of the command to love, or better stated, what not to love. You and I have not been raised with Christ to love the world. We have not regained everything that we lost in Adam's fall in Christ to set our affections on worldly things. John clearly says in verse 15, do not love the world. All usages of the word love here in this text are the familiar agape kind of love, the self-sacrificing, disciplined love. But let's talk about the world here for a minute because there might be some questions when it's said of a believer, do not love, the question might be, wait a minute, didn't God love the world and therefore give his only begotten son? We need to understand what John means by using the world. This is a favorite word of his. It is found 79 times in the Gospel of John. And again, 23 times in this short epistle of his. And when you consider the world and what John means, he uses the word in three different areas, in three different spheres, if you will, in his gospel and in this epistle. Sometimes when he's speaking of the world, he's speaking of the created order. He's speaking of the creation of God that is declaring that there is a God and a creator. And in that, we rightly as Christians stand in wonder and awe of those things. It's not what John has in mind here in verse 15. Sometimes he refers to the people of the world. Or we might say the human race. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's not the way he's using it here either. He's using it in this third aspect of being the, quote, rebel order or the world system. And in that sense, John is saying, do not love this rebel order of the world. And this rebel order embodies the influences and forces hostile to God, and as such is used of an unbelieving and pagan society. That's what John is referring to. These words belong to Curtis Vaughn. He says, as in John's gospel, the world is the system of rebellion and pride that seeks to displace God and his rule. It is this system rather than the created order itself that is not of the Father and that has already been marked for judgment and destruction to which John here refers. This is what you and I as believers in Christ are not to set our affections upon. We are not to love that world system that is in rebellion against God. But then John also includes in that, there's not just an abstract group of thoughts represented in the rebel order or the world system. He includes the things of the world. And while these would include the material things like the shiny the shiny objects, the shiny new things that we're all drawn to, 
which in and of themselves are not bad. It's the love of those things and even the love of money that is what we are warned against. So even when you read the word things here in verse 15, it's not just those material things. I think here is an early reference to what John would call just a little later, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Those are the things of the world that he is here referencing, that we are not to set our affection upon. And the greatest part of this negative aspect of the command to love is found in the second half of verse 15. And if you don't hear anything else, this this is where you should listen this morning. If everything else I've said has fallen on a deaf ear, so be it. But please hear this part. When I read this verse, part of this verse, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now let's be clear. Salvation comes through faith in Christ through resting in his finished work for us alone. But as we saw earlier in chapter 1, that love of God reaches a point in the life of a Christian where it is made perfect, where it is made mature, where there is fruit being born. And what John is saying in the second half of verse 15 is that the love of the world and the love of God are diametrically opposed. And they cannot be found in the same heart. Matthew Henry said, the heart of man is too narrow, it's too small for both of these to be present. There's one or the other. Now what John is not speaking of here is the struggle and the fighting against the world. We all experience that. Every Christian, the father, the mature, aged believer referred to in verse 13, and the young men referred to in that same, those same three verses, 12 through 14, both experienced the real struggle and fight against worldliness. What John is referring to here by not loving the world and the things in it is the unmitigated love and lusting after that which the rebel order of the world offers. Mutually exclusive. Both cannot exist in the same heart. Don't take my word for it. Take John's word as he wrote under inspiration of the Spirit. If anyone loves the world, if anyone has so set their affection on the things of the world, if the things the world has to offer is what drives you, If the things of the world are what make you get up and get going in the morning. I realize we have responsibilities, we have duties, and we're right in in going after those things. But concentrate here on the word love. Concentrate here on, on the word lust and craving. And do an honest examination of your own heart. Which is in me? John speaks so, so clearly and so plainly. And isn't it tempting when we run across something like this in the scriptures that is so clear, so black and white. Our love for gray things, right? To make things kind of meld together. 
really shows itself here because we want to soften this in some degree and make it really perhaps not say what it is saying. There is a time to see things in, in that way, but this is not one of them. This is not the way John writes. It doesn't fit with the great contrast that he makes all throughout this book in giving tests as to whether or not you are truly in the faith. This is a great book for you to settle down in if you are struggling with your own salvation. This is a great book to read and study and pray over and ask the Lord to teach you the things that are contained in it if you have any measure of doubt of your own salvation before God. Because John presents to you a series of tests. By this we know, if we do this. And what he is saying there, if the Spirit of God is producing this kind of fruit in your life, then you know the Spirit of God bears witness with you. Romans 8 teaches us that. The Spirit of God is bearing witness and declaring that, yes, we are indeed the sons of God. But a close examination sometimes will, will reveal that the love of the Father is not in me. These things that John is saying that should be represented in my life simply just are not there. As hard as I look for them, as much as I want them to be there, they're just not. What do you do? Well, we skipped over a few verses in the end of the first chapter for, that, for this reason. Before we finish out these verses, I want to go back to those. In verse 8 of chapter 1, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. On the other hand, if we confess. Now I want you to notice the difference. Please see the difference between saying and confessing. I pointed out all the verses where John says, if we say, if we say, if we say, if we profess and profess and profess, but then don't do in light of it, we're lying to ourselves, to others, and making God himself out to be a liar. Notice the drastic difference in merely saying and confessing Confessing is a sort of agreement with God that, yes, there is indeed in my heart both sin and sins. You can't read this first and second chapter without noticing that distinction. Sin is what you inherited from Adam. Sins are what you actually commit because of what you inherited from Adam. And if you confess these things to God, if you confess your sins to Him, if you lay yourself open and bare before God and say, yes, the Spirit of God has come and has proven in my own heart that I am a sinner before you. If you make that open confession, then there is a great promise attached to this. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God cares very, very little for what you say. He cares greatly for what you confess. 
say all day to no end. Confess truly, really, repenting, believing, confess, and he acts upon that. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. Those of you who have come to Christ, you know there is a point prior to coming, prior to perhaps it's a product of regeneration. Some theologians split these, hair, split these doctrines so closely it's like splitting hairs, trying to get the order of salvation right. It's an interesting study. Spend some time with it, but don't get too consumed in it because some of these, ha- some of these parts of salvation happen simultaneously. Regeneration, conversion, justification, all words that we need to know, be familiar with, what they mean. But here it says that he will cleanse us. Part of that process is an overwhelming sense of unworthiness and sinfulness. And this is not to say that every conversion is going to be dramatic. It's not to say that every conversion is going to be an explosion. But every conversion will have in it somewhere a conviction of sin. And to a child, that conviction of sin is going to be a far less, to a far less degree than someone who has lived as an adult for many years in the dark. But both truly and miraculously converted nonetheless. So what I want you to do is look at the word cleanse. Saying and not doing is lying, right? We've got that clear from this part. Confessing your sins. Agreeing with God that yes, you are a sinner leads to cleansing. Being washed and made pure, even as white as snow. And then John jumps down, and it's important that we understand this as well before we go back to verse 16. It's important to understand that a, that a Christian, a true believer, is nowhere in the Scriptures does, it ex, does the Lord expect of you sinless perfectionism. Some would teach that. They would use these verses to teach it. But they're wrong. They're wrong because God does not eradicate the sin nature from you when he saves you. That sin nature remains and you are to mortify its desires and put it to death. And so the first verse of the second chapter, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If there is anything within you this morning that makes you want to just fall on your face before God, surely it's this truth that Jesus Christ is advocating for you. An advocate obviously is someone who stands in between. This is the mediating aspect of Jesus' work. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Here that mediating work is is clearly shown. Jesus is advocating for us with the Father. He is there pleading his own wounds in our stead. 
showing the print of the nails in his hands. Where the thorns had pierced his brow. All of these Jesus is advocating for us. Because not only do we have an advocate, there is an accuser. We need intervention and we have it in Christ. And we get to the second verse. Don't be confused with the second verse. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means to remove, to mitigate, to remove wrath, to remove sinfulness by his blood. But John also says not for our only, but also for the whole world. How are you going to understand that? You have to be careful lest you become a universalist, and a universalist would say that everyone's going to be saved because of this verse. Jesus propitiated not just our sins, but those for the whole world. The rest of the scripture clearly teaches contrary to that, doesn't it? So the best way to understand that is that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world without distinction. From every tribe and tongue and nation and people. It doesn't matter what part of the, quote, world they are in. Jesus can propitiate their sins as well. It's not just this small group that John is writing to. So now let's go back and see where John goes back to this struggle that real Christians have. The struggle resides in the heart of a Christian... And you fight against it. But when the struggle doesn't exist and there is nothing but craving and lusting after the things of the world, beware. I think that's the point of what John is saying. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the cravings of this physical body, The lust of the eyes. The things that, that you see, that you want to go after, and even what he calls the pride of life. Some refer to this as the trinity of evil. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the things, in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Everything that the world has And that we, by our unredeemed nature, lust and crave after, we are not to love. He says, these things are not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away. If we're consistent with our interpretation of the word world here and the understanding of it, what John is saying is not, though it's true, that this physical world is passing away. What he is saying is that the rebel order of the world and being in opposition to God is passing away. It's moving on. And notice 
It's already begun. Go back up to same chapter, second chapter, back up into verse 8. He says, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and you, because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. Sometimes you refer, we refer to the kingdom of God as having already come, but not yet in fulfillment. That's what's referred to here. But notice also the lust of it is passing away. It's fleeting. If you like logical arguments, John gives you one right here. The logical argument would be why are you pursuing that which is fleeting and has already begun to slip away. And then in conclusion, verse 17 at the end. But, here's the contrast. He who does the will of God abides forever. Notice the contrast of the slipping or passing away and the abiding forever. So, here's what I ask you. Are you in love with the fleeting, passing vanities of the world? Or are you in love with the Father who is in heaven and with his Son, Jesus Christ? If the answer is to the former, You will abide forever. He who does the will of God. We have to be careful even in understanding that rightly. John is just saying that this is a fruit or this is a, 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 an effect of your salvation. You're going to abide forever because you're in Christ. But because you're in Christ, you're going to do the will of God. That's how we could say it. So as we approach the Lord's table, I think it fitting and appropriate for us to see where our love is, where it's directed, and to deal honestly with this part of verse 15. If anyone loves the world to this degree, the love of the Father is not there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We ask, Lord, that you would help us understand them and that your spirit would apply them to us. Father, we want to channel our efforts and our love in the right place. Like Christ, we want everything that we do to be in love and out of obedience to our Father in heaven. We want to love the brethren. We want to give ourselves unto one another. Father, help us not to set our affection on the things of the world. All that is there is is lust 
lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. And it's vanishing. It's passing away.